of the UAS SUAS News Podcast Series, where we interview uh, SMEs and discuss the news relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. It uh, looks like our um, co-host, Gene, is MIA, but he's probably out doing something, staying busy these days. This week's episode is episode number 32, and it is a UAS retrospective with our guest, uh, UAS entrepreneur Jay Wilmot. And I guess we're going to talk about some of the uh, news stories, but I think we're going to jump right in here uh, and start talking about the subject matter of this podcast. Now, I know our guest, Jay, here for a few years, and uh, the listeners may remember him as he was a guest on episode number 16, if you were here, live from uh, AEVSI's Unmanned Systems North America 2012. This guy, he's been at the unmanned aircraft thing for so long, I believe I saw him in one of the glyphs on the Mayan calendar. And I think I I know some other guys in that, that same glyph, but it's hard to tell. Jay, could you please give the audience a little bio and how you got into this field, sir? Wow. What a great send-up. Patrick, thanks. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. And you know, this is a passion of mine. It has been uh, for a, a long time. Um, as a matter of fact, the AVSI show in Las Vegas this year was my 25th consecutive year of being there. And you know, a lot of friends in the industry and a lot of, a lot of memories. So it was, it was good to be there. Uh, it was an exciting venue. It's good to be here, too. Um, I don't know if uh, very many of you, people, of you folks understand it. I grew up in Huntsville. And I don't sound like it, but it was a great place to be. And it's been so exciting in the last several years uh, to watch the the uh, blossoming of the UAV industry there with the Army Program Office and all the, all the cool stuff that's going on there. So it's been, uh, been a long way. When I, when I was a kid, we had Rocket City RC Shop, and I used to go and look at the RC helicopters of the day. And they were, you know, by today's standards, very crude, very difficult to operate very expensive and and certainly out of my reach. I I never grew up as a as an RC model as many of our aerial robotists have. Um, I was a plastic modeler. I followed after my dad and built plastic models, and I got basic construction skills and and painting and those kinds of things. And I uh, had an opportunity some years later to get hooked up with the guys who founded the original Brandenburg Tool Company, who really were were visionaries and wanted to apply RC technology to unmanned aircraft. It was the RPVs, as we called them back then. And they had a, a program at Hopkins Applied Physics Lab at Columbia, Maryland, uh, called X-Drone, that was started by the great Maynard Hill, who was, to this day, a, a renowned aeromodeler, holds records for, I believe he still holds the altitude record for an FAI class uh, aircraft of twenty seven thousand feet. Right. And, and then, he he also uh was the guy that did the transatlantic flight. He did, right? and that was that was that was an FAI class aircraft which is you know much smaller than anything you know ordinary uh UAS today. So he was way ahead of his time but he believed that the what the market needed was simple, you know, elegant solutions for, at the time, the, the system we were building was, was an airborne jammer. And it had evolved slowly into a reconnaissance platform. And the program wound up lasting almost 20 years. In fact, there's a there's an X-drone hanging up down in the 
Pax River Air Museum in Washington Park, Maryland. So it it was uh, his notion that it required more than a bandsaw and a drill press to build these things, and it was too hard, too complicated, and probably cost too much. But yeah. I have a background. Brandenburg Tool evolved into Brandenburg Air Structures, evolved into BAI Aero Systems. We moved to the Eastern Shore, and we were there until uh, really a few weeks ago. L3 acquired the business in, in uh, late '04, and you know during that time we were in the in the thick of a lot of program development efforts. Uh, Begat, uh, Turn, and Mako, and Tiger Shark. And a lot of good things. We were competitors for the Raven program before that, Dragon Eye. And it's an exciting road. Well, yeah, most definitely. And there's a lot of lottery history there. Now, it's kind of funny, and I want to flash back to the Maynard Pan. Um, you know, <clears throat> I got a, I got a questionnaire probably about six months ago from these kids at a well-known university. And uh, they had a survey on there. When do you think uh, this is going to happen? You know, when, 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 what year do you think the first trans like Atlantic flight will happen of it? And I'm like, that happened back, what was that, 97 or 98 oh. or something? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that's old news. Really? And I want to talk more about that when we um, fast forward in the Wayback Machine. But, uh, like uh like you said, I mean, you, you laid out a lot of history there. Uh, some, and, and, I mean, I gleaned some first impressions of the technology from what you said and some of those systems and even the the the, the Maynard maxim there that if it uh, took more than the drill press and the bandsaw it's too complicated but you know when you first got into this you know what were your first impressions of the technology you know what what what, what were you thinking well it just made sense to me Patrick that you, you could apply you know something smaller and lighter less expensive to operate than a manned system. And, you know, certainly for the mantra, dull, dirty, dangerous, it just just made sense that, that this was where technology was going to go. And the, the question then, as it is now, is how long is it going to take? And certainly much more viable today than it was then. But back then, you have to appreciate, we did not have a lot of the ready solutions that we have today, things like uh, payloads, uh, INSs that were small enough to fit on, you know, five-pound airplane. And this was all pre-GPS. So, right. you know, we, we had to deal with a lot of those issues, you know, poor quality data links. Uh, some of these things we had to invent our own solutions for because they just didn't exist in the market. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I kind of, you know, it's funny you talk about uh, the modeling history and uh, the hobby shop. I I really got into this deal with rockets. I used to buy, they had a... Uh, it was like a Boy, Boy Scout pack of rockets. I think you got enough stuff in there to make 10 rockets. And, I man, I'd go nuts with that thing. <clears throat> and then I got into the gliders because I, I kind of liked uh, the quiet, you know, thing. And, and like you said, back then it was kind of expensive and rudimentary. But, you know, we've we've definitely come a long way. Um, and, I, and I definitely think since the electric revolution, as I like to call it, things have really opened up wide. Um, all right, well... 
you know, another thing I wanted to kind of talk about, and it kind of uh, it kind of plays into that survey, is um, I, I kind of find it ironic. Uh, folks, you know, come up with these uses, you know. Oh, my God, you can use this thing for agriculture, you know, and there'll be like a news story. It'll be a big, you know, they plan to use this unmanned aircraft thing or this drone for agriculture. Nobody's thought about it before. What do you think when you read these uh, news stories and, and see uh, TV stories and stuff? What do you think? Oh, I think there's nothing new under the sun, really. I think we've envisioned a lot of these applications. Let me go back to Scan Eagle, for instance, and you know, Academy Gears Vision using this for uh, tuna spotting, and that was years and years ago. And so I think we we saw potential applications, but the limiting factor had always been the viability of the technology and the cost effectiveness. I mean, to this day, it's difficult to compete with. You know, a guy we call Joe Cessna, somebody who will put a payload up in the air and fly for fuel just to book the hour. So it's it's for for particularly for the the non dull, dirty, dangerous, and civil commercial applications, the it's the cost factor and what's happened through you know development by mostly DoD applications and DARPA and so forth that, that have funded the, the hard uh, development of, of enabling technologies is that those technologies are much more commonplace and and uh, are going to enable things like the taco copter. You know, I can't wait to get my first taco delivery, uh, you know, by unmanned aircraft. Why not? Well, I, uh, I we'll did, come uh, up prescriptions, you know? Well, you know, I, that's definitely, I mean, I've talked to people who uh, they, they wanted to deliver, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals to people, you know, Nanook, up there in in the uh, hinterlands of you know Alaska or something, you know that makes sense. I, I could see that taco copter, and uh, I saw a new story for burrito copter. And you remember the old adage about uh, you know they'll be delivering pizzas with these things. And I did I did see somebody that had made a video and he had a pizza on it. I don't want to blow his cover because I think he, that's probably going to be part of his marketing thing. But uh, it had a pizza on it and a couple of Cokes. Um, you know, there's still some logistics to work out there. You know, it's that pizza box, FAA certified. <laughs> the lids for the Cokes. <laughs> that's you know, you have a tube certified certification. Well, it could, but it might be kind of hard to get a you know pizza box type certification. We'll call down there and ask. <laughs> well, you know, I think that you know we look at the specter of thirty thousand drones in the air by twenty fifteen. You know, what's lost there is that some of those are going to be delivering pizzas or something. They're not all you know surveillance drones, and that's that's another topic altogether. Yeah, we're going to – yeah, that one is uh, – that is another topic. But, I, you know, I do think that uh, there are viable uses that are already – I talked to a gentleman. He uh, just – I was in like a – doing some Christmas shop. He called me up. He says, I was just down in Brazil, and they're using these for agriculture, and they, they see so much promise that they think that uh, this technology is going to give them the edge to compete with the United States in farming. So – you know, I mean, we've been out here, uh, you know, proselytizing and talking about how great this technology is. But it's it, it, when people start applying it and seeing what it can be can be done with it, and the money that they can save. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, and, and I think it's kind of funny. You know, the gentleman did ask me. He's like, "Well, there, are there any other countries using these for agriculture?" You know, and of course Japan and and, and some other countries. But you know, my thing with that is. Uh, 
if a country sees that much promise with it, you know, that, that, that they could compete with the United States in farming because of this technology, uh, and they're wondering, you know, when's the United States going to get on board? When, when are they going to legalize this? When are they going to be able to use it? How much of a head start do we have? And that is one of the things I keep talking about, is that head start. Your comments? The technology is viable. It, it, you know, the ability to do crop dusting or you know, remote sensing of, of crops it has, you know, we've had that capability for a number of years. It's sad that we're not able to apply that to our own benefit here. And that, but that, that too is another topic. We'll get there. And I think when we focus our resources, you know, I, I go back to being a Huntsvillian and watching us put a man on the moon as a child. And, you know, after that, any other technical accomplishment is is small in comparison. So when the time comes, we are really unsurpassed, I think, in in our ability to apply technology to to tough problems. And when we have the resolve and the permission, we will lead the world in, in application of unmanned technology. And we're already seeing it, uh, ground robots for harvesting. You know, those applications exist. And part, part of the problem that we have is that we're not able to point to these shiny examples of of civil commercial applications of our technology because we're not able, by and large, to, to do them. Other countries are having that success. And it, perhaps what we need to do is point to their success and support that. I, I would bet you that, you know, while Brazil is a, is a powerhouse when it comes to aviation, and, and there are others in, in South America, for instance, but that, you know, there are, I'm sure, partnerships that exist between those countries and companies that are involved in Precision Ag in South America that are partnered with U.S. companies. So we we are feeling our way along, and we are benefiting from that. It's just that our our own people uh, are not the beneficiaries of lower cost, reduced environmental impact, and, and the other things that go along with things like jobs and, and you know, that, that are direct uh, benefits of, of applying this technology. Well, yeah, I, would, I think we'll get there. I, I agree with uh, all of that you said. I mean, I, I, I mean, I even tell people, they say, well, you know, uh, what do you think of this technology? I, I, I think it has more promise, immediate promise than green. I think that uh, what's available now, uh, as far as the technology is concerned, could be put out there, put to use in the field, especially farming is one of them, private and public asset management, uh, fishing, Timber, um, you know, uh, the the pipeline surveys, the power line surveys, which is funny. I was at a thing not too long ago, and uh, I was speaking, and I, I had a bunch of oil people there, and I was like, think of the money you could save if you were use these unmanned aircraft to do your pipeline surveys and the savings that you could pass on to the customer. And, of course, the room, you know, roared with laughter. <laughs> That's not really how it works, but, you know, it sounds good. <laughs> But, it, you know, uh, there's saving money and saving energy, and it's green and yada, yada. So uh, those are immediate benefits we could realize. And we will. I think it's just a matter of time. I read today where BP is, is uh, using a uh, 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 quadcopter to do pipeline inspection. Probably not in the United States, but, you know, that's that's a good thing. That's a, that's a headline. That's the kind of headline our industry needs. You know, something positive. 
I agree. Now, I have to say, though, I'm as a little uh, suspect. A quadcopter for pipeline survey is going to be, uh, I don't know if that's the right tool for that job, but, you know, that's for them to figure out. I, I do think that there's a little bit of a disconnect with the uh, applications side of uh, of this technology, and maybe it's because uh, the mainstream part of it is is young. What do you think? Well, I think we have to be careful not to, uh, ju- just like we don't like to be painted with the, the, the brush of Big Brother, I think we have to be uh, careful and objective in, in how we portray the benefits of our technology. Unmanned aircraft are not a panacea. They're, they have their limitations. They can be costly. And so I think it's a matter of recommending you know, the, the right technology for the application, first and mm-hmm. foremost. The, uh, you know, we, we don't want to be mindless cheerleaders our technology, but I think we have to, you know, get the word out that there are there are things, there are possibilities, and we are solving problems every day with this technology, and and that it is rapidly maturing. It matures every day. And like I said, I come from the days before GPS, and we've got a, a lot more capability and ability to be safe and and perform and provide valuable function than we've ever had, and that only gets better. I agree with that. And, you know, I, I definitely, uh, I, I mean, you know, you're preaching to the choir on that one. But, uh, you know, and then that we could talk about that a little bit. Maybe, you know, uh, I would label you one of the modern forefathers of this this field. And, and you know, I, well, I would. I mean, you've been here for a while, man. You know, there's no denying. I mean, how many how many years you got in on this? Well, going on 30 years. You know, and but I know I know guys that have been doing this longer than me. The peers, the peers in our industry, I like you know the late Maynard Hill, for instance, and and, and others, and who are, who continue to contribute. I tell you, one of the things that that is is uh, you know kind of sad to me, and so it's alarming. As I look around, it's a consequence of getting old. I, mean, I used to be the kid in this industry, and now I'm you know a modern forefather. You know, so. <laughs> I, I am shocked at the loss of the peers, the people who came into this and believed in this when there was much less to believe in and much more work to do and all the heavy lifting and the shoulders that we all stand on who made contributions to where we are today. And, and, and we're, they're, they're retiring, they're leaving the industry, dying. It's, it's, uh, it's a consequence of life, but, I uh, I miss them, and I think that there's still a lot that that they could contribute. I appreciate the fact that there are a lot of the a lot of the people who managed our programs and built the companies that are you know so such leaders in the industry. Uh, they had other careers first, and many of them were, uh, for instance, military officers and had five military careers, and then they transitioned to industry and built industry and built programs. And corporations grew as a result of that, and all of the merger and acquisitions that we've seen over the past several years. So it's uh, you know, hats off to them for you know being strong and being leaders and establishing our industry. Oh, and I, I would agree with a lot of that. And you're you know that is funny as as time rolls on here. Uh, I used to be a kid. <laughs> But yeah. you know, age is creeping up on me, and it and I'm 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 having a flashback of my first ASTM meeting in Reno. I think it was 2005, and I'm sitting there looking at this timeline 
that had us running out to 2009 and saying, man, this is more of a commitment than I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> you know, I remember a voice in that. I'm like, we're, we're talking, what, four years here? You crazy? I got stuff to do, man. And, uh, you know, here we are, 2012. But uh, let me but ask time, you. Patrick, time flies when you're having fun. So that's, uh, that's what I find. It, that the last almost three decades that I've been in this have been a lot of fun. And, you know, you, but everything takes longer than you expect. I was part of the uh, AUVSI committee that uh, selected, decided to go down the ASTM trail and, uh, you know, never really imagined that it would be as long as it was, but that's just kind of the nature of the beast. We just don't know it when we get into it. Well, maybe, but I, I, you know, I don't know, coming from the private sector, because I'm a commercial guy myself, uh, the the amount of time and waste is disgusting, in my opinion. It's taken way too long. We haven't gotten anything, and really, you know, and I try not to beat up on the FAA, but I, I definitely think it's lack of leadership and direction from the FAA, you know. We could disagree or agree on that, but uh, from my, from where I sit... You know, I haven't seen, I still haven't seen anything in writing from the FAA for standards they want people to work on. And again, you know, maybe that changed in the last 60 days, but, uh, you know, I'm not participating in any standards group work until the FAA puts some skin in the game, you know. And that skin in the game it could be a one pager. Hey, we need this, 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 and this. Because, you know, being a guy that has had to uh, go to these things and basically pay for it primarily out of his own pocket or donations from the community, uh, the the inactivity is a real high chapper, you know. Someone wanted to pay me six figures a year to sit there and, and play the game with the FAA for five, six, ten, fifteen, twenty years, you know, that might be a different story. Your opinion, sir? I think that, first off, the... Uh, maybe an apologist or defender of the FAA. I think that we we have to work with them. I, again, I was on an AUVSI committee uh, years ago. Mike Cernero recruited me to, to uh, help, I guess it was really to educate FAA and create a working group to exchange ideas and help move the understanding and process forward. And but, uh, So I, I believe that they are uh, earnest, I respect the need for safe operations and standards and so forth. Um, but I also believe in accountability. And I believe, you know, as a fellow private sector person, you know, when I don't do my job, I'm going to get fired. It's that simple. And, you know, mm-hmm. what do we always say? Does it, does it take an act of Congress to, to accomplish something? It's, you know, it's like that. It's the pinnacle of difficulty in getting something done. Well, here we have an act of Congress. And, and now what we have is a, a, uh, a deputy administrator who has, you know, risen to to his level of incompetence apparently because now we're we're throwing in a red herring of privacy, which is, as far as I could tell, never a purvey of of FAA. And I'd like to know, well, what? If, okay, if, it, if it's not an act of Congress, what does it take? Where where is this individual and his agency now? Uh, where do they get off? Not adhering to a schedule that was put forth by Congress and raising these, these non-relevant issues. I have a real problem with that. And I, I, frankly, I don't know how the rules work, but I think it's a, it seems to me that the HC is in contempt of Congress. And Congress, of course, Congress is broken, too. 
But if Congress were doing their job of oversight, that the individuals or agencies who were responsible for being in contempt should be hauled in before the appropriate committees and forced to answer a few questions and and, or, and, and perhaps fired or not confirmed, as the case may be, in order to make the point. You know, firings will continue until morale improves. Well, the inactivity is unacceptable. You're preaching to the choir here. There's there's no accountability. Um, I mean, some of the stuff that's come back, even on my behalf, to my congressperson, to me, is it's like, <clears throat> you know, uh, what happened to the representative form of government? You know, people from my community here, hundreds of thousands of people voted for this person to represent us in D.C. And this person writes you a letter and, you you know, you treat them like uh, it's a family show. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I, I believe well, the same you as know, you. Is There's got to be some accountability. And, you know, the other thing, here's one deal that gets my goat, too, with the FAA. They don't have an administrative procedures manual, which just shocked me. Because I had asked about that with the edict of uh, February 13th of 2007, which I believe they made a uh, a 180 on FAA policy and without crossing the, the T's and dotting the I's. So I go, okay, well, let's see a copy of the Administrative Procedures Manual and how this all fit. And they came back and said, we don't have one. How do you – how do you, how do you, how are you a federal administration with no uh, administrative procedures manual? So what do you just like kind of willy nilly and you make it up? And I think that that's one reason that where we're at today. The other thing I have to say is the language in H six five eight HR six five eight. I saw a pre um, let's say a preview of that before it came out, and I said, mm, nah, this isn't going to work because uh, it did not. It's like telling – I equate it to telling a teenager to clean up his room. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you have a teenage son. I do. And uh, you say, well, well you, yeah, hey, get in there and clean up the room. You go in there, well, I didn't know you meant the closet too, you know, or – oh. I didn't say you should you should clean up your room. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, I didn't know how to do this. Yeah, so it's the same thing with the FAA. They could have really drilled it down and said, hey, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do this, you know, and this is how you're going to do it. Um, and I think it was too loose and fast, and I think it was naive to think that uh, you're going to get a, 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 the, the FAA to move around uh, on such vague language. Now, I don't personally believe that test site thing is about privacy one iota, you know, um, Again, I go back to the small U.S. Ark, the last bin or the fourth bin with the 55-pound aircraft. Was it going to be a test center idea? It would be out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, privacy is not really an issue out in the middle of nowhere. I think it's a political issue. I think, like you said, the assistant administrator, this guy's thinking about, you know, Greece and the skids to get himself, uh, you know, confirmed, hopefully one day. Um, and, you know, Every district in the United States is called and inquired about a SUA or a UAS test facility. Everybody thinks that this is the new thing. So I think that there's it's a it's a political minefield. If you give one to one state, the next state's going to go. Well, you know, screw this guy. I'm not voting for him. What do you think? Well, have we seen the criteria for selection? First off, I mean, and the fact is that everybody, you're right, is signing up saying we want one in our backyard. And that kind of implies that, we, and we want everything that goes with it. We accept, you know, the uh, airspace conflicts, and we accept privacy issues. And and but we want it as a community. We're taxpayers. We're voters. So that's 
that's good enough. I mean, the president just said it, it legalized marijuana. He says, you know, the, the federal government has better things to do than to go and pursue individual uh, marijuana users. So the, the taxpayers, you know, the voters have spoken. And so the voters are speaking when they say we want a, a facility here and we believe in the technology and we want this to happen. The, the thing is n- no one's listening. And I, I think the FAA could could – it would go a long way, and I, I'm a big believer in finding the middle ground or the middle air, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they, they could go a long way if if they would, you know, uh, throw a bone every now and then. And what we've seen is, you know, a lot of restrictions. You know, uh, uh, thou shalt not. How about a couple of thou shalts? Let's uh, find a way that's reasonable. I mean, I, let's let's go back and, and look at uh, some of the languages. Four ounces. Okay, it's considered an aircraft if it's four ounces or has a wingspan of, what, six inches. Really? I, I mean, I, I have a fundamental problem with that. I think that, you know, where do we go astray with this whole process uh, was not challenging that in the strongest possible way. Mm-hmm. When FAA defined us as aircraft when we have things that are the size of, of you know, hummingbirds. Come on. And Amen, so if, brother. If, you know, so it's it's a matter of reasonableness, and it's a and, and frankly, the stroke of a pen, FAA could, uh, you know, provide a lot of benefit to a lot of people by finding some middle ground, <clears throat> but they choose not to act because that's the safe thing to do, and and they throw up an excuse like privacy because that's the politically correct safe thing to do. So that that's just uh, it's just not acceptable, and I don't know. Other than to say, write your congressman. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. That we we as an industry need to be more engaged at the at the uh, advocacy level. I'm, I'm so proud that ADSI has stepped up and has taken a, a leadership role over the years at many of our urgings to to you know let's be a a force to represent the goodness of our technology and all the, you know proponent for all the people who are are contributing to our industry, and they, they're doing that. And we're getting things like HR 658 as a direct result of, of our, uh, of course, the media calls it lobbying. But that's, you know, folks, that's how we do business in America. We we have to get our point across, and it's a matter of educating the, the rule makers and the lawmakers on, you know, what are we, what are the benefits in, in frank, objective, you know, non-frenzied uh, terms of how how we can benefit and why it's in their interest to act and and to enable us to go forward. So I I'm a big believer that that that's an uh, an invaluable part of being a member of any technology that, that you know is, is facing these kinds of uh, restrictions and uh, onerous rules that prevent us from doing business. Right now, you know, and you hit on a couple of those. Those were uh, I did have a question uh, for you, and it was some of the wrong turns, and and you 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 hit them, and that's why you're on the show. That's why you're a guest here today. Uh, one of them, I definitely agree. Letting the FAA remember when they were unmanned ve- uh, aerial vehicles. Okay, I remember they, they were RPVs. <laughs> right, exactly. But when they were vehicles, they were not in the purview of the FAA. They were not aircraft. They came back and redefined us. And you're right. Is a four-ounce aircraft with a six-inch wingspan or something that's the size of a hummingbird or even a little quadcopter or something, is that really an aircraft? Is a cargo really commercial? I mean, I I made that argument, too. It's a... 
I'm not really, I'm not carrying persons or cargo, you know, I'm carrying possibly ones and zeros over here, you know, is that a cargo, you know, is it, is it truly commercial because $1 changed hands, if that's the case, you know, you're not supposed to do any commercial activity in light sport aircraft, but, you know, from what I've heard, it's not free to learn how to fly, you know, uh, and there, there are some other examples like that, but there's double standards and this community, uh, you know, and at some time, I, I know I don't really like to tread into the personal responsibility pool because uh, it seems to upset folks, but, uh, you know, it's up to the community to say, hey, 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 that's inane and we're not taking that. But a lot of people that are involved won't do that because they don't want to upset the apple cart. Uh, I think that's a mistake. Another point I want to hit on is you talked about, you know, advocacy or whatever else. The best advocacy, and this is something that the RCAP has been very successful at with minimal amount of money, is the grassroots. We've had, you know, campaigns where people have written their congressmen and the phone was ringing off the hook down there at the FAA to the point where they asked us, you know, could you please stop? Because it's just taking too much time answering all these letters and phone calls and it's it's a hassle. And, you know, it's funny that being naive back in the day going, oh, OK, well, it's too much of a workload. All right, we'll back off, you know. That was the wrong move. It should have redoubled or tripled our efforts and uh, kept the phones ringing and the letters coming. And I and I think that that would have been something that uh, maybe would have uh, affected some change. So, you know, you live and you learn. But those were some of the points I saw what you were talking about, some of the stuff I had it hit on, um, you know, in, in, in this conversation. But, uh you know, I don't know. You've been around long enough before uh, 2007 to February 13th, and I know you were flying. A lot of other people were flying. Did you really? Did you really think it was it was the menace that it was portrayed? This technology. You know, anything can be a menace. You go to the post office. Is there anything potentially hazardous? Yeah, everything is potentially hazardous. So you have to be careful, and you have to you know, weigh the risks and be willing to accept the risks and. That's what I think we all did, and now the risks have been defined as as now FAA has to manage the risks. Um, but I I really think that if we were to uh, look at the technology and say, well, you know, is is this a risk? Is is something? I think we need a review. I mean, I, I've often said that I don't think that we in industry have done a good job of of educating FAA and and others on. Um, what it is that we have, and as the technology continues to evolve, certainly everybody sees, you know, <clears throat> the application of predators and global hawks and so forth. But I don't think they see that the that there's smaller, more innocuous systems out there that that don't represent a threat. And and when they when they do, okay, when they when when you do talk to people who have been air traffic controllers or, or pilots. And you go, look, here, here's what we're talking about. They just go, come on, really? No. So there, FAA is, is, is not morphing with the technology. I accept blame for the industry that we haven't done good enough of a job to, to, to you know, assuage their fears. I, I also think, too, though, that, that uh, where we need to apply resources is less on the sensor development and autopilot and all that. What what we've got to do is is uh, address the deconfliction, and and I've always felt that the, the best way to mix 
systems in, in, in the airspace. It's just altitude. And it, I also think that, you know, look at the AMA, for instance, the grandfathering. That's a remarkable fact of airspace management, that the FAA has grandfathered in and allows a lot of systems to operate in the national airspace. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. They, they do so because somebody has a construct that works for them. It's, it's, first off, there's, you, know, you know who it is. They are insured. They're in a, in a defined area, and they agree to operate under certain conditions. And, and so the FAA was handed a ready-made solution for that. And perhaps if, if we went to them with a similar construct of saying, look, give us – and I, I, isn't this what small U.S. rule is supposed to address, though, Patrick, that you know, we're going to have some relief from things like COAs and maybe some, some uh, ability to operate small systems at 400-foot level, for instance. That's what I'm hopeful for. And that's why I think that, like I said, if the FAA can find that middle air and that compromise, that, you know, some benefit will be realized, and I think we would be griping a lot less. Well, I agree. And, you know, even what was uh, – there were – I mean, even uh, – I don't know if you read the RCAP or proposed guidelines. We came in with those and, uh, you know, other other – organizations like MITRE or whatever used parts of that. It was very pragmatic. It was implementable today. It was less than what is going on right now. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, gave them to that or gave them those. And, uh, you know, to come up to find out years later, they didn't even read it. They're not interested in reading it. They're not interested in doing anything. And that's where the accountability comes back in. Um, you know, these the 400 foot and 1500 feet laterally or whatever, that should be a given. Especially for aircraft, frangible aircraft under four pounds. The other thing that I'm going to have to harp on again is the people that have been driving this integration effort are driving their products. And even the ARC that's going on now, you have a, 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 a bunch of vendors on there who are looking to make their products uh, the solutions for this problem. And that's not the way to go about it. I think that we've uh, been trying to pound a, a square peg through a round hole for the last 10 years. And that's me, but uh, from what I've seen and in, in the history that I have it was part of this um, effort, there there were solutions and there are solutions. And I just don't think that uh, you, you have people at the FAA that have the leadership, uh, let's say the guts, to make it happen. You know, they just don't. They don't have the will. Same deal. I talked to the uh, office of uh, the White House Office of uh, Science and Technology, and they were like, "Well, what what could we do to help this along?" I said, "You know, the president could call down there himself, and they would say, Mr. President, are you going to take uh, you know responsibility for the safety of the NAS?" And that's usually where our our Congress people fold up like a cheap taco. Uh, no, gotta go. See ya. Have a nice day. But if I was the president, I'd be like, why would I want to do your job? What's the taxpayer paying you for? What are you doing down there? You know, uh, what's happening? And so, uh, you know, again, I think that's a capability. And some people might think that that's kind of heavy. Um, I FOIA requested the progress reports and the financials for the Unmanned Aircraft Program Office and the new UASIO, and uh, I'm, I, I plan on doing an expose on that when I get them. They're notoriously slow, but I want to see if we, as you know, the public and taxpayers and whatever else, what we've been getting for our millions of dollars. Do you think that's that's those are some fair questions, Jay? 
Sure. Um, I, I agree with you on the accountability issue, and I think that, that it comes back to um, being an advocate and letting your elected officials know what you think and what you expect and uh, asking them to you know, act on your behalf. And, and if the leadership doesn't get the job done, uh, you know, it's not a marriage. Get rid of it. You know, let's <laughs> move on. Next, yeah, I mean that's that's how I think about it. You do your job or you go. Uh, I don't know, I, and I do. You know, when you said that earlier, as a private sector guy, I mean, you know, you don't come into a they got a job description and you know, uh, yeah, we want to hire you to come in and solve this this problem. Okay, great. You know, three years later, well, hey, we're going to call you in for your review. What have you done? Well, nothing. Well, do you plan on doing something? Well, yeah, you know, you're you're gone, you know, you're out of there. I don't even think it would take that the first year, you know. Well, so you've just sat there at your desk and you really haven't accomplished anything. Well, no, but you know, I went on a couple of junkets and uh, I'm trying to figure some stuff out, and maybe in a couple or two, three years, I might have something for you. Get back to me, you know. You're, you'd be fired, but. Whatever the case. Anyway, we're we're almost down. We're we're like at a four minutes. And uh, someone who survived in this field, uh, maybe you can you can speak to that. What what's been the, let's say uh, the key to your success for being a survivor, here on well, the unmanned systems island. I think I think success is a relative term. Uh, survivor is is probably more apt. And uh, I had a boss once that told me that. Uh, you know, about stick to itiveness, and I, I'm a big believer in that. Stick to it. Just find something that you love and do it. At first, it's not a job, but but uh, the experience that you gain, the the relationships that you build. You know, it's interesting as I look back. Perspective is that the things that I did, that the the skills that I developed, the the technology piece of it. A lot of it's obsolete. Who cares uh, about some of that stuff? And so, what at the end of the day, the it's the relationships. Uh, it's who you know, not what you know. Sometimes, and so that's that's why I enjoy the association, I enjoy the industry, and uh, I have a great many friends. But I think that the uh, there's an opportunity for for everybody in the industry to to uh, collaborate and work toward the common goal of industry growth. And you know, I don't know, a lot of it sounds like sounds like motherhood, but my I, I just stick to it. Just stay with it. You know. And uh, I think try to lead the discussion, you know, or at least be part of the discussion. Don't sit on the sidelines. And we're all part of, uh, you know, part of the solution. Well, and that's some very uh, sagacious advice. I, I I agree the same. It's funny you see people come in and they're all fired up, and I got this aircraft, and I'm doing this, and I got this application, and poof, gone like the wind. Six months later, well, where are they? You know. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think you got to hang in there. I know I enjoy this industry. I enjoy this technology. I enjoy the promise. Um, and, and those are all some of the same things I, I share. And I agree with that advice that you gave. Uh, you got to get involved. You have to get involved for a future uh, that you want to see yourself in. That's kind of how I put it. Well, I, you know, I'm going to give a, a shameless plug here to the ASI Hampton Roads chapter. We're we're having a uh, workshop that we're co-sponsoring with the uh, Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. The uh, Center for American Studies has a workshop on uh, the Reapers Come Home is, is the title of the workshop. But we're we're going to talk about privacy issues, and we've got a great slate of speakers from 
academia, from industry, and, and from you know the Department of Justice and ABSI. And it's going to be, I think, a good forum for for coming together and exchanging information. And I think we need to be more engaged with with the detractors of our of our industry and, and you know let them know what what we really are about. We're not big brother. That we we do have. Uh, I think we share their vision for responsible use of the technology. That we're we're not going to do uh, something that that is uh, contrary uh, to American principles and to the way we uh, the way we do business. It's it's uh, necessary for us to be proactive and to engage people who seem to have other views of what we're all about. Right. Well, I think it's an excellent opportunity. I want to thank you for coming on. We're almost out here. It's time to pay the bills. But uh, thanks again, Jane. We'll have to have you back on in the future. Today's podcast is sponsored by Hood Technology, experts in advanced EOIR gyro-stabilized four-axis imaging systems for small UAS. The company offers low-swap payloads integrating EO, MWIR, and lasers to provide unparalleled long-range imaging from moving platforms. Visit www.hoodtech.com for more information. H-O-O-D-T-E-C-H.com.